0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. It is occasionally a topic of conversation on this podcast, um, and and I can be blamed a lot because it's a topic of of interest to me that we discuss international tax things and international planning. And when you're going to do that, you need to do it with somebody who knows what they're talking about. And that is why Ritu Pepoff is with me again. Ritu, thank you for coming back.
1: Thank you for having me. It's good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's... uh, we were just talking before we started here how you're in your office now, and I'm still at my house. So I'm not sure who of us is doing post-pandemic correctly, but one of us has got it sorted.
1: <laughs> it's probably not me. It's
0: probably. No? <laughs> I'll, I'll ask uh, other members of your family. That's what I'll do. I'll get the truth from them. I will pry it out.
1: Good point. Good point. Yes. <laughs> That's so, probably true.
0: for people who have forgotten who you are or don't know who you are, Uh, maybe give us at least the high level.
1: Sure. So Ritu Pepoff, I'm assistant general counsel at the Northern Trust Company in Chicago. I am am in the legal department where I support our wealth management business. Um, I do a lot of work around uh, international estate planning, inbound wealth, Uh, cross-border planning. I'm also the legal advisor to our Cayman affiliate, Northern Trust Cayman International, and so see all kinds of fun stuff in that space.
0: I'm sure. Lots of fun stuff, all sorts of strange, mysterious things. That's kind of how I feel when I'm talking to people about these international inbound app outbound structures is you're really describing some strange, mysterious thing.
1: Yes. And there's a lot of layers to it, Mm. right? I mean, there's, there's the asset information, there's the family information. There's also the intent of various family members. There's a lot of nuances in this area. And so it can, it can be pretty easy to get tripped up here.
0: It can be, that's for sure. And you're professor up off as well. So some portion of the population has to call you professor.
1: Um, I choose to ignore that. And they could if they really
0: wanted to. Oh, that's an opportunity missed. I'm so sorry to hear that. I think you could really leverage that into something.
1: Yeah, I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, it's up to you. Um, okay, so... Let's focus today on what in in say in the community of people who do this kind of work would be referred to as inbound issues, inbound being people who are not Americans. And I guess, sorry, we're going to focus on individuals, not companies. Okay, So people who are not Americans coming to the U.S. either physically or by sort of reach of their dollars. And people sometimes do both and sometimes just do one or the other. But the rules are somewhat the same for both sets of people.
1: Yeah. And I think just even to start at the very beginning, you Mm -hmm. know, why do estate practitioners need to know about this and, you know, why should they care? Well, as we've seen over the last few years, clients are becoming increasingly global in terms of where they live, where they work, certainly, um, who they marry. And so I think it's important for trust and estates practitioners to just have a basic understanding of the tax rules related to individuals who are non-U.S. persons, and they may have U.S. assets. And As we'll talk about, you know, the income tax rules for non-U.S. persons and the transfer tax rules for non-U.S. persons are are pretty different. And so it's important to understand those distinctions because you could be considered um, an income tax payer. Uh, for non-U.S. persons, but not for transfer tax purposes. So it's important to really do the analysis on both income tax and transfer tax rules.
0: Yeah, I think that's super true. And you uh as as i like to tell people you have to first figure out who your client is in the eyes of the irs which is complete fantasy you know it's like it has nothing to do with anything at all other than this magical fantasy land that is the tax world so well let's set it up that way then let's if if you want to maybe dive into the, the tests for residency. So first off, I guess, for clarity, for everybody, we're talking about non-Americans, people who do not have a U.S. passport or they're not otherwise citizens.
1: Right. And so, so I think we start with what are the federal income tax rules for Mm U S persons? Because if you do not meet that rule, then you are by definition, considered a non U S person for income tax purposes. So we all know that U.S. persons are subject to U.S. income tax on their worldwide income, right? And we know that individuals are considered U.S. persons if they're either a U.S. citizen or they're a U.S. resident. And citizenship is fairly easy to determine, right? Citizens are born or naturalized in the U.S. subject to U.S. uh, jurisdiction. But what's a little bit trickier is how to determine residency for income tax purposes. Are you uh, a U.S. resident for income tax purposes? And so under the IRS rules, a person will be considered a resident for income tax purposes if that person is a lawful permanent resident. So think of like a green card holder. And this is true regardless of whether the person is actually residing in the U.S. when he or she holds a green card. And then the other way to determine residency is through what's known as a substantial presence test. And so the substantial presence test is a uh, is satisfied if a person is physically present in the United States for at least 183 days of the current year, or satisfies a formula to establish a weighted average of 183 days over a three-year period. So it's very simply a mathematical calculation to determine whether you're considered a U.S. resident based on the substantial presence test.
0: Right, and it's a, it, it is an objective test. Uh, which I think is important to remember because when we start talking about the transfer taxes, uh, objectivity almost goes straight out the window. So the, or it largely goes straight out the window. So that, yeah, so like the weighted the weighted average, you count every day. Well, first you have to have been here at least 30 days during the year, during the current year. Then you, t- you count up all the days you were present in the US in the current year, a third of the ones in the prior year, a sixth of the ones in the second pre- previous year. And you add them all up. And if it's 183 or more, then- too i guess too bad so sad depends on who you are there (laughs) there's some weird um anomalies in the way that you count the days though right because you don't you as a general proposition you count every day present in the u.s and then we have these weird little carve outs that tell you nope don't count that day oh don't count that day
1: right exactly so for example commuters like if you've got commuters from uh canada or mexico they're not considered present in the u.s on the days that they commute. So you wouldn't count those days. Um, There's also, I think, an exception for unforeseen medical conditions. Uh, There's an exception for airport layovers. So the IRS does carve out certain exceptions, not only in terms of the days that you may be here, but also certain individuals based on who they are. So, for example, foreign government related individuals um, don't need to satisfy this substantial presence test, um, teachers, students. So, there are definitely some carve-outs here. The other thing to keep in mind is that the determination of residency in the U.S. for income tax purposes has to be made on an annual basis. And so, since the determination is made each year, an individual could be considered a resident in one year and then a non-resident in the next year, just simply, again, based on the number of days that they've spent in the U.S. So it's important to look at that calculation each year to determine if you fall within the U.S. residency test.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And it means that people have to be cognizant of counting those days. Sometimes it's easy because you you have sort of the the, the um inbound outbound like stamps when you come in and, and leave from a port of entry but that doesn't always happen and just because you know the the agents at the gate doesn't stamp your passport it doesn't mean that you're off the hook like you still have to count the days
1: that's right it's not a freebie right. no it's not a freebie
0: that's right it's not magic ink <laughs> in that stamp unfortunately <laughs> exactly um so what if someone for income tax purposes uh, they're not here 183 days, so they they sort of off the bat don't vi- don't uh, meet the substantial presence test. But on this weird weighted average thing, they're still treated as a resident. Is there any recourse for that person if they don't want to be a resident?
1: Um, for income tax purposes, you would have to make sure then that you are not in the U.S. based on that calculated number of days. So mm-hmm. it is really important to be mindful of the days that you spend in the U.S. because you don't want to inadvertently cause yourself to be a resident if that's not your intention. Um, And unfortunately, we don't see the intent uh, really mattering that much for income tax purposes. And it does matter for transfer tax purposes, but even if your intent was not to be a U.S. resident for income tax purposes, it really doesn't matter if you have satisfied that weighted average or 183 days in the current
0: year yeah and the, and the math on it is if you're here we'll say 122 or more days for each year for three years uh then you'll be treated as as meeting this substantial presence test even though say for the first two years you don't meet the test by the third year the math goes against you and that's really easy to do especially if, so the one the the situation that comes up st- really frequently um that i see is canadians canadians come down and they spend time they're they're allowed to be here basically half the year uh so they come down here they spend a good chunk of the year out of the cold and then they go back because they can basically travel without a visa and just doing that will do it that's it even though we welcome them to come down it doesn't mean that these rules don't apply
1: that's right i think that's absolutely right so it, it is important particularly for canadians Um, any of these boarding countries, Mexico, just to be cognizant of those rules because you don't want to inadvertently trigger an income tax we didn't otherwise mean
0: to. No, that's not a very fun realization. There's, you know, if somebody does trip up into these things, then we have these two safety valves, right? You can, uh, if you maintain a home, they call it a tax home. If you maintain a tax home in another country or no country, but but you basically then keep closer ties to that country than the U.S., then you can you can claim a closer connection. That's only if you're here less than 183 days. If you're over 183 days, you're out of luck. But if you're under that and you trip up on these rules, then you can claim this by filing a particular form with the IRS as a get out of jail card. But you have to file the form. You don't just get it. Not yeah, for free. I think
1: that's right. So there's that closer connection exception. And essentially, you have to put forth an argument that based on all the facts and circumstances, a person had a closer connection to another country. Um, But that really, I mean, you have to convince the IRS of that. And so the IRS is going to have to really look at all of the facts and determine whether in fact you meet that closer connection exception. And I would really hate to be the one to have to rely on that when you've got sort of this at, you know, very clear, objective test to to just be mindful of. But certainly, yeah. if you really do trip up, you could um, try to see if you can get over through this closer connection exception. But you'll have to put yeah. forth a pretty convincing argument to do, to do that and show that and demonstrate that you have a closer connection to another country than in the U.S.
0: I completely agree. It's a lot easier if you just you're never here more than 100 100- say, 120 days, um, leaving in two sort of gap days in there. Maybe you leave in a few more just for, for good measure, and then you never have to deal with it. And I mean, I know a lot of Canadians who come down and their advice when they come down from the Canadian advisors is this file for a closer connection. But you're 100 percent right. Like, well, you get closer. connect. Yes, you have to file it to get it like you're in the game if you file the form. But the IRS could disagree. That's
1: right. And and look, you know, the IRS is a revenue generator, right? That is their purpose. And so it, it's not something that I would want to rely on if I had an alternative
0: Yeah, there's there is one other alternative, uh, the fun one, which is if your home jurisdiction in the U.S. have have a a tax treaty, uh, then usually that tax treaty, if it deals with income tax, for example, it has a list of ways to determine whether you are going to be a resident in one country versus the other. Because for example, let's say you're a Canadian, you basically live there full time, but then you're spending too much time in the U.S. so now you're dual because the U.S. views you as a resident, but Canada still views you as a resident. So now you're a resident in both places. Well, we have a treaty with Canada that tries to sort out which is the true home jurisdiction. But again, basically you don't get it for free, the IRS position is you have to claim this to get out of US residency. You can't just you can't just uh imagine it in your mind. So let's say you're here more than 183 days, you can't do closer connection. Now you've got to rely on the treaty with somewhat similar tests to closer connection, but you got to do something. You have to actually take action. That's really weird for somebody who's not an American to file stuff with the IRS.
1: That's right. I mean it is just generally speaking whenever you're dealing with two countries to consider any treaty implications that are involved, but some treaties don't address it. And so if a treaty doesn't address it, or there is no treaty with the U.S. and that other jurisdiction, the fact that you have dual citizenship doesn't mean that you can get out of becoming a U.S. taxpayer. And so dual citizens who uh, may not have a treaty on point are still going to be considered U.S. taxpayers for income tax purposes.
0: Yeah. And if they can't use closer connection, they really have a problem on their hands. So this is super common when you go south because we only have two income tax treaties, one with Mexico. That makes sense. The second one with Venezuela doesn't make a lot of sense today, but there used to be a time where that was a friendly place to us. So, yeah, we have two tax treaties. Every other place you can imagine in your brain, including Brazil, no tax treaty. It's mind boggling. And yeah, I see it all the time with Latin American clients where they trip up on this rule and there's no recourse no way to get out.
1: That's right. And even if there was a treaty on point, I mean, the treaties are not easy to read and to digest. And so it is also really important that you co-counsel with an attorney in that other jurisdiction just to make sure that the treaty makes sense and that you can advise your client competently uh, when it comes to both the U.S. and that other foreign jurisdiction around these treaties and its application.
0: Yeah, very, very true. All right. We've probably killed that uh, twice or three times over. Uh, What about transfer taxes? We alluded to the fact that maybe transfer taxes were different. So what are those rules like?
1: Yeah. So the determination of residency for transfer tax purposes is very different for income tax purposes. And so we sort of alluded to it a little bit. For transfer tax purposes, a person is considered um, a U.S. resident based on domicile. And whether an individual is a U.S. domiciled person is a very subjective facts and circumstances test based on the intent of the individual. And so a person will be treated as U.S. domiciled if they have moved to the U.S. indefinitely with no plans of leaving. So unlike the objective determination of residency for income tax purposes. The domicile test for determining residency for transfer tax purposes is much more subjective because it deals with the intent of the individual. And when you think about the practical implication of this, is that a person can be considered a resident for income tax purposes, right? Because you've now satisfied 183 day in the current year or or averaged out over three years but not for transfer tax purposes. And so the way that I tend to think about it is that domicile is an issue in every transfer tax situation unless you're dealing with a U.S. citizen. If you're dealing with a U.S. citizen, then maybe you don't need to think about domicile and intent. But anyone other than a U.S. citizen, so that includes U.S. residents, you need to think about, domicile. And so the next question that often we get asked is, well, how do you determine an individual's intent, right? Like, how do you know whether someone intended to come to the U.S. indefinitely with no plans of leaving? Or, you know, what if they were just here on vacation and something unexpected happened? And there are a few factors that That we could look at. One is just the individual's legal status in the U.S. Are they a green card holder? Do they have a work visa? Um, And and how are they living in the U.S.? Do they have business interests here? Um, Do they have family members here? Are there minor children? And if there are, are they in the U.S. or or are they in the home country? Do they have any social or community ties in the U.S.? You know, are they, do they have a driver's license here? And it's not that any one factor is conclusive. So it really, it's important to consider all of the factors to determine whether, person had the intent to stay in the U.S. indefinitely. And again, just like we talked about with the closer connection exception, you really have to put forth a solid argument that you want the IRS to say, yeah, that's right. I can see based on all of these facts and circumstances, this was the intent of the individual.
0: I was hoping you were going to say there's like a magic truth serum. (laughs) If there
1: is, I haven't found it.
0: (laughs) That sounds easier.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the reality of it is the case law on this is incredibly inconsistent. Um, And so that doesn't really provide us with a lot of guidance. And so one case that I uh, think about a lot is the estate of Khan. It's, uh, I guess, now in 2023, it's a relatively old case. It was back in 1998. Um, And this uh, Case really stands for the principle that once a domicile is acquired, it's presumed to continue unless you show that it's been changed. And so, in that case, there was an individual from Pakistan who came to the US, obtained a green card, but then went back to Pakistan and ended up staying there until his death. So, the time of his death, he let his green card expire. He was a citizen of Pakistan at the time of his death. And the question was whether this individual, this decedent, was a resident for U.S. estate tax purposes. And the tax court held that the decedent still had the intention to stay in the U.S. indefinitely. And what they based it off of is that there's a rebuttable presumption that the domicile, once this decedent acquired it, it's presumed to continue unless um, there are other factors that would indicate that they were intending to give it up. Um, And and that can be really troublesome when you think about just sort of how how people move throughout their life and what that really means in terms of transfer tax purposes even if you end up dying there he was a citizen of Pakistan let mm-hmm. his green card expire is sort of hard to reconcile at times
0: yeah and I I think I recall in that case that he when he went back he he became ill and that's, so he couldn't travel anymore that's um, right. and I and my recollection was that that was a that was a key factor now that's not really that's not excellent planning. So if anybody's trying to plan around these rules, that's not the, the plan of go get sick somewhere is not a good one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're, you're hundred percent right. It's, it's really bizarre. It's hard to meet out exactly where the lines are. There are, there, there are even, you know, you mentioned like the, the visas. So let's say you come here on a, a quote unquote non-immigrant visa. And when you get one, you have to pretend that you're not going to stay here forever. In fact, you have to swear it. And there are some cases outside of the estate tax arena where federal courts have said, well, that means you can't have the subjective intent to become a domicile. Like, OK, great. But then there's an, at least one IRS ruling where the IRS said, oh, yeah, somebody who came here illegally. So they have no right to stay. They can become a domicile because so. The IRS basically has taken a position that's contrary to what federal courts have decided in in other cases, not in the exactly in the estate tax arena, but at least on this issue of residency and domicile. So it's a really difficult minefield.
1: That's right. And I think um, when you mentioned uh, a person who's entered the U.S. illegally, you might have been referring to the revenue ruling. I think it's. Was- uh, 80-209. Yeah. And you're right, yeah. the tax court held that a person who entered the U.S. illegally and died in the U.S. was, in fact, domiciled, even though that person had never been legally admitted to, to the U.S. And there, the facts showed that they lived in the U.S. for 19 years, they owned a home, they were active in the community. And so that led the court to ultimately conclude that this individual never had the intention to leave the U.S. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that point that you made about the Khan case, uh, about the deceit of becoming ill, that's really what the tax court held their hat on, because they said, well, this individual got ill. And so he never intended to remain in Pakistan indefinitely. It just so happened to be that he did. And so... Because this particular individual had already established domicile in the U.S., you need to essentially indicate that you've given up that domicile and had the intent to have domicile somewhere else, which they didn't satisfy in the con case.
0: Yeah. Okay. so if if everybody's following along here to this point, this may be a big assumption, but let's just assume everybody has followed us here. Down this strange, strange road. So I guess the next question that people may be thinking is, so what? Who cares? What is the difference? What is the purpose of all this talking? That's
1: right. Who cares? Well, we have to care because we have to advise our clients on um, what they're going to be subject to from a tax perspective. So if we start with the income tax, right, and let's assume now we're talking about non-U.S. persons, so we're referring to an individual who is neither a U.S. citizen nor a U.S. resident, then we need to understand where how are non-U.S. persons subject to income tax. And non-U.S. persons under the tax rules are subject to income tax on two types of income, U.S. sourced income and income that is effectively connected with a trader business. So, if we take each of them individually, what is US sourced income? And the way that the IRS defines US sourced income is income that is fixed, determinable, annual, or periodic income, FDAP. So, fixed, determinable, annual, or periodic income. And the easiest way, I think, to think about it is that this FDAP income is all income except gains resulting from the sale of real or personal property or income that would already be excluded from gross income, regardless if you're a U.S. person or a non-U.S. person. So uh, those would be things like a tax-exempt municipal bond interest or a qualified scholarship income. They wouldn't be subject to uh, income tax, regardless of the status of the individuals. So, some common examples of FDAF income include things like compensation for personal services, dividends, interest, um, alimony, royalties, sale commissions, uh, sort of everything other than the gains resulting from the sale of real or personal property or income that's already excluded. Uh, from gross income based on the tax code.
0: Yeah, which which is handy because what you're in essence describing there is that there's a big hole, right? Because then the question is, well, if it's not FDAP and then if it's not effectively connected income, which you're going to describe here in just a second, then it's got to fit somewhere in this middle ground. And does that get you out of it? That becomes a very important question. And the answer becomes, not always.
1: Right. And and there are certain things um that are excluded from the statutory definition of Fdap so Under uh, Code Section 871, portfolio interest and bank interest is excluded from the statutory definition of FDAP, and so therefore it would not be subject to U.S. income tax by non-U.S. persons. But that's why it's so important to actually read the code is because they do have these carve-outs, but these carve-outs are not intuitive, and so it's important to make sure that when you're advising clients that we understand the rules and we understand the carve-outs um, because they don't necessarily connect all the dots.
0: No, they do not. <laughs> no, oh. they do not. Uh, okay, what about this effectively connected, in? well, effectively connected to a U.S. trade or business income? Just so everybody knows, it's not like everywhere in the world. It's just stuff that's effectively connected here.
1: That's right. So uh, we talked about um, U.S. sourced income, and then the second is uh, income effectively connected with a U.S. trade or business. So, Generally speaking, when a non-U.S. person engages in a trade or business in the U.S., all income from sources in the U.S. that's connected with the conduct of that trade or business is considered to be effectively connected income. And whether you're engaged in a trade or business in the United States really depends on the nature of your activities. Um, If you own and operate a business in the U.S. selling services or products or merchandise, you are generally speaking engaged in a trade or business in the U.S. So a common example might be uh, profits from the sale of um, inventory um, that's either purchased in the U.S. or in another country, but the sale in the U.S. is effectively connected trade or business income.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or you come in, you you start a company here because there's a lot of capital and you've got a, a good workforce and you build this company. Well, as that company is operating and making money, that all of that money for you is effectively connected here and you have to pay tax here on it.
1: That's that's right. Uh, but it's really those two buckets um that non-U.S. persons are subject to income tax on, and so people may notice that non-U.S. persons are treated a bit more favorably under the Internal Revenue Code for U.S. income tax purposes than for U.S. persons, since they're essentially taxed on fewer categories of U.S. income And this preferential treatment, I think, for non-U.S. persons is intentional because I think we want to encourage foreign investments in the U.S. We don't want to make it difficult for non-US persons to invest here and boosts our economy. And so I think that's very intentional why non-US persons are just quite frankly taxed on fewer categories of US income than um, US persons.
0: True. Very very true. You can tell who has the lobbying uh, power in this country. By the by the way this works. Well, so so one of the carve-outs you mentioned just just quickly this would be way too deep of a dive for uh, this episode but just to just to mention it so if you if you're selling and or if you're selling personal or real property in the u.s and you're a non-resident you don't get out of tax on the real estate Um, it gets treated as effectively connected income and then there's some withholding tax under what's called FERPTA well beyond we don't have time to get into FERPTA but um, and then on the personal property side if it's a Business intangible, then it's effectively connected. So, but there's that leaves a big hole. And the big hole people might be noticing happens to be stocks and bonds that you can buy that are traded on an open exchange investment positions. And again, this is all intentional. This is what we want. We want cash coming in, propping up our our, uh, financial system and our markets.
1: That's right. I think that's absolutely right.
0: That's on the income tax side. Now, if we flip the script to the estate tax side, it's not as nice.
1: Yeah. So it gets uh, just a bit more complicated on the estate tax or transfer tax side. And and that's because we have to really break it down between estate, gift and GST tax. The rules are different uh, for transfer tax Purposes under each category of transfer tax. And the way to think about it is that as a general matter, uh, non-US persons are taxed on a situs basis. So starting with the estate tax, non-US persons are subject to estate tax on US-situated assets. So this would include uh, US real property, US tangible personal property, and US intangible Personal property. Um, there is a caveat here, and I know we, you know, we already mentioned that there are some exceptions. Again, are not very intuitive, but there are some assets which uh, may be physically located in the U.S. but are not considered U.S. situated property under 2105 of the code. And uh, um, these are things like uh, proceeds of life insurance on a non-U.S. person's life. Uh, U.S. bank accounts, uh, works of art on loan in the U.S. So, again, just really important to review those exceptions as well. But generally speaking, for estate tax purposes, non-U.S. persons are subject to estate tax on U.S. situated assets. This is different than for gift tax purposes. Non-U.S. persons are subject to gift tax only on transfers of U.S tangible personal property and real property located in the US. So not on intangible property. So I think the the way to the, the most common example would probably be um, like a US home and valuables inside that home like jewelry, artwork, cash, those would all be subject to gift tax, uh, but not on intangibles. So when we think about interests in domestic Entities, those are intangibles. And so to the extent that a non-US person is transferring those types of intangible assets, they would not be subject to gift tax. That's um, a
0: weird it's a weird distinction because let's say I own Apple stock. I could gift it away for free. But if I fail to gift it and the next day I die, I probably pay a 40% estate tax.
1: That's exactly right. Because we know for estate tax purposes, you are tax non U.S. persons are taxed on all U.S. situated assets real, tangible, intangible, right? So in your example, if you die holding Apple stock and it's transferred at death, it is subject to estate tax. But had you transferred that Apple stock during your life, then it would not be subject to any tax because it's exempt from gift tax. It's an intangible asset. Um, And then just similarly for the for the sake of just clarity here, for mm-hmm. GST purposes, a transfer by... Everyone's uh,
0: favorite tax, by the way. I just <laughs> want to... I, I know everybody's super excited about GST tax.
1: I Right, exactly. We could go on and on about GST tax. Um, but th- I think the simplest way to think about it is that <laughs> you'll only be subject to GST tax to the extent that you would also be subject to a estate or gift tax. Yeah. So the time for testing whether GST tax applies is say, is the same under the estate tax or gift tax rule. Um, so if, for example, a non-U.S. person uh, gifts your Apple stock to grandchildren during their life, the GST tax doesn't apply, right? Because it's not subject to gift tax. But if um, that same individual gifts that Apple stock to grandchildren at death, then you would also have not only an estate tax issue, but a GST tax issue. So the GST tax only applies to the extent that you're also subjecting yourself to a estate or gift tax.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. And one of the other differences is, um, if people are familiar with sort of gift and estate gst tax for for americans is that the estate tax exemption for a foreigner is sixty thousand dollars it hasn't changed forever and it's not going to change these people don't show up on election days, so they do not get to put pressure on congress that is meaningful so that's not changing for gift tax there's no exemption zero So once you fall afoul of this rule and you do the dumb thing and transfer U.S. tangible or real real estate, I say somewhat tongue in cheek. Um, But if you do that, then there's no exemption zero, even though Americans have a big exemption now, almost 13 million per person. And then for GST tax, uh, it's maybe not so clear. The regulations, which were written a long time ago, say that the exemption is two million dollars. So is it now 13 or is it two? Is it something else? And there's nothing in the code that tells you. So it's better to just be smart like you and just avoid the whole situation by not having a gift or a estate tax situation.
1: That's right. And there are planning opportunities that um, non-U.S. persons can take advantage of to avoid uh, some of these rules. Right. And so um, I don't know if you want to talk about some planning opportunities or if you want to talk a little bit more about a uh, state. GIF, GST tax and the differences, but I think what's really important is what can non-US persons do about these rules and and some planning opportunities that are fairly simple to take advantage of.
0: Yeah, let's do let's do a couple kind of kind of top three uh, so people have something to take away. So when they get to the end of the episode, they won't think, well, that was not that helpful.
1: That's right. Now I'm just scared. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, great. So you've identified there's a problem. What do I do?
1: That's right. Well, and and there are some planning opportunities, but the, I think the disclaimer here is that before implementing any U.S. tax planning strategies for non-U.S. persons, you have to make sure that the proposed transaction doesn't run afoul of any tax rule in the non-U.S. person's home country. So we don't want to suggest any strategies that could have unintended tax consequences in the home country. And this is where co-counseling with an attorney in that other jurisdiction is really important, just to ensure that whatever strategies that we are proposing are appropriate, Also in that home jurisdiction. Um, But I think the most obvious planning opportunity is gifting, right? It's gifting by non-U.S. persons of uh, of a couple of things. One is non-U.S. situated assets, right? So since a non-U.S. person can really make unlimited gifts of non-U.S. situated assets, foreign assets, without any U.S. transfer tax implications, this non-U.S. person can Uh, gift those assets outright. They could uh, place them in dynasty trust if tax planning for multiple generations is an important objective, because when we're looking at the transfer tax rules, we're we're looking at U.S. sidest property. So all of the non-U.S. sidest property could be gifted without U.S. tax implications. When it comes to U.S.-situated assets, because we talked about this discrepancy between the U.S. estate tax rules and this U.S. gift tax rules related to intangibles property, it means that it could make sense to give away U.S.-situated intangible assets before death so that they're not subject to estate tax at the non-U.S. person's death. Um, And again, we know that there's no gift tax on the transfer of U.S. intangible property, but those same intangible U.S. property are subject to estate tax at death. Um, and, and the non-U.S. person can gift those assets either inside or outside the U.S. because gifts of intangibles are not subject to gift tax. So that can occur anywhere. Um, the other um, opportunity is if non-U.S. persons want to gift tangible assets, um, well, we know that they could be subject to gift tax. So If they're tangible, the non-U.S. person should consider relocating tangible personal property that's currently located in the U.S. to outside of the U.S. to avoid those gift tax implications. So you're essentially just making it a non-U.S. situated asset.
0: And it's anywhere non-U.S. It just has to be outside of the U.S. It doesn't matter what country it went to. So that's the key. We are, we're only concerned about our borders. We don't care whether you take it to your home country, whether you take it to another country. None of that matters. It's just anything outside the U.S. will do.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, and so that's for gift tax purposes. Um, there's also planning for uh, state tax purposes. We said how... For estate tax purposes, a non-U.S. person is taxed on all U.S.-situated property. Well, in your example that you used earlier with Apple stock, right, and we know that if a non-U.S. person waits to transfer that Apple stock at debt, they would be subject to estate tax. But if that individual put that Apple stock in a foreign corporation, then you've automatically made it a non-U.S. situated assets. And so Mm -hmm. those interests would not be subject to gift tax or estate tax, regardless of what is within that foreign blocker corporation is is a term that we often use. You're blocking it from estate tax because it had that non-U.S. person held those assets outright. They would be subject to estate tax. But by holding it in a foreign blocker corporation, you're insulating it. From those estate
0: taxes. Yeah, a- a- absolutely and that that's yeah, that having that foreign blocker entity that's the the sort of trident truth. It's not without its risk, but it you know that's the probably the most common way to do it. Well, those are really good uh, options for people. and now that we've given them the answers, nobody can call you professor because if we'd have just done it without any answers, that's real <laughs> professorial material.
1: That's right. That's right. I just pose the problems and let you ponder how to solve for them.
0: (laughs) That's right. Like, I'm not an answer person. I'm not an answer person. Okay. High level. (laughs) Well, Ritu, thank you so much for doing this again. uh, I appreciate it very much. If people are trying to find you, what's the easiest way if they're needing your assistance in some way?
1: Yeah. So, um, I'm sure with social media and LinkedIn these days, it's probably pretty easy to find me, but uh, my email is rp, as in pepoff, 176 at ntrs.com. Um, I, I don't know, Brent, if they'll have the bio posted anywhere, but um, certainly if anyone has any further questions, I'd be more than happy to talk more at length for any individuals who are just as nerdy as me and <laughs> like to talk about these. Rules. But <laughs> I think the key takeaway is that there are planning opportunities for non-U.S. persons. We want to make sure that we're co-counseling with uh, attorneys in the non-U.S. person's home jurisdiction. And the overlay to all of these rules is that you have to consider treaty
0: implications. Yeah, no question about it. All very true. Well, yes, and I'll definitely leave uh, your contact information in the show notes, too, so somebody who needs to find it can find it there. If for some reason Google doesn't work, (laughs) um, they they can look there. Well, always a pleasure. Thank you again so much for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me, Brent. It's a pleasure.
0: Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com. And follow me on social media at Wealth and Law. I'll see you there.